Welcome to another edition of Ticket Splitters, the Grassroots Midwest podcast. This week, we're very glad to welcome State Senator Jeff Irwin, um, an old friend of mine. I can say that because Jeff and I are the same age. Um, recently elected State Senator from Washtenaw County, and uh, we're super excited to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on it. Um, so we're really excited to have you on this week. Um, we're obviously a bipartisan firm at Grassroots Midwest, and so we try to have folks on from kind of all walks of life, um, all different kinds of partisanship, and uh, you know, talk to them about how they do what they do in politics. So the first thing I want to ask you about is growing up political, uh, which you did. Um, your dad was an elected official. Your mom's been involved in politics for a long time. Um, why did you get into this? Most kids rebel against their parents, and you were in with both feet pretty much right after college. Yeah, most kids do rebel against their parents, uh, particularly at a certain point in life. That's why I'm raising my children in such an ultra-liberal environment. I'm counting on that to be my retirement plan. Right. You know, they can uh, rebel and, and go into some sort of more lucrative... Uh, Captains uh, of industry. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, I hope I wish the best for them. But, you know, that's true. What happened to me was... Uh, when I was one, my dad got elected to the state senate from the Upper Peninsula. He's from Rudyard. My mom's from Sault Ste. Marie. They met at Lake State. Um, and uh, so the entire uh, first you know, 12 years of my life, really, was uh, growing up in a family where politics was always, always around us and always going on. Sure. And it was a different time as well. You know, We had different communication technology. And when you have a district like that that stretches from Traverse City to Alpena to Escanaba, including the Sioux, I mean, you're always three hours from everything. And so we spent yeah. a tremendous amount of time in the car, a tremendous amount of time stopped at pay phones in Indian River or whatever else, <laughs> right? And um, one of the things that I grew up thinking was, oh, gosh, I never want to get involved in politics. This seems like a, a really um, you know intense, uh, stressful, frustrating, difficult enterprise. And, uh, you know, I had to do something uh, you know, in the business world, and, you know, so then when I ended up uh, being able to go to university, I got accepted to the University of Michigan and moving to Ann Arbor. And I had promised myself at that point I was not going to be involved in politics. <laughs> you know, but what happened was I was at the university. And I started getting involved in environmental issues. I started getting involved in some environmental clubs. I started getting involved in a group called the Ann Arbor Tenants Union, which was an organization that provided uh, counseling services to tenants that were struggling with their landlord for one reason sure. or another. And doing that work just gave me this tremendous window into why people do this kind of stuff, right? When you have the opportunity to, and when you do help people and you can see that manifesting in their life and you can see that you've improved someone else's life in a tangible way, it's incredibly exhilarating. It is a wonderful thing. And so... When I realized that, you know, then I started getting more involved in student government and student politics because I realized that there was an opportunity there to get more resources to help more people. Right. And that just it just caught fire. And, and I ended up running for county commissioner when I was still an undergrad uh, because, once again, I was working on all these issues. There was an open seat. Affordable housing is a huge issue in Washington County, still is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so I ran for a seat on the county board to get the county more involved in addressing those kinds of issues. And, and I was really proud to serve on the county board for 10 years where we got a lot done on affordable housing and a wide range of other issues. And I got a real window into the mental health system, which was really illuminating. Got a real window into the criminal justice system, which was enlightening. And uh, then you know, I had an opportunity to run for state rep in 2010. So that's kind of how I uh, did that 180 degree you know, the apple was trying to roll away from the tree, but, uh, you know, I think what happened was in college, I really realized why my parents were doing this or why they were dedicated to public service, because it is truly wonderful. And, uh, you know, you can do great things for your community. That makes perfect sense. I, um, there is something addictive about the feeling of really being able to help people. You know, I remember that from my first days working in the legislature doing, uh, constituent service for representatives you know somebody calls you in tears on the phone and they they're having a really difficult issue about whatever that might be if you're able to help them there's not much that feels better than that that's absolutely right so i love i, I love working on policy i love getting involved in issues where you can see how that might affect a lot of people's lives in a positive way but i also love it when we can just help one person you know, there's all sorts of folks who are struggling to navigate the bureaucracy maybe they got kicked off of medicaid when they're totally eligible because they didn't fill out some form or they didn't dot some i yeah. and you know just helping those folks uh, you know, get reconnected to the help that, that, that they need and deserve. Uh, you know, e even those the, those individual uh, cases are really uh, rewarding. Yeah, that's a great point, too, is that I think for most people, you know, for people like us that work in politics, you sort of lose sight of the fact how hateful an experience it is 
for the average person to try and interact with an executive bureaucracy. It's sort of second nature to us because we've been doing it for so long. But for most people, that's a god-awful experience. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the eligibility forms yeah. for Medicaid, if you look at what, you know, the hoops people are required to jump through, you know, it's a, it's, it, you know, it's at least a part-time job just to yeah. you know, sort of maintain uh, you know, your benefits. And so, you know, given the fact that a lot of the folks who, um, who are eligible, you know, are, are, are struggling in more ways than one, it, you know, being able to call their legislative office and get some help is, is I think, an important outlet uh, and some important service we can provide. And it's, um, you know, it, it's a nice thing that you can do for your community and for that individual, um, especially, you know, as you know, I've served in the minority the entire time I've been in the legislature. So yeah. uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing is, is around the edges or, you know, it's, it's, it's striving to get the other side to, to you know, take a look at something a little deeper. Uh, so those cases where we can help one person just solve their problem on that day, uh, we cherish those, too, because it's, it's, it's an important part of the work. Yeah, take your wins where you can get them. Absolutely. So stylistically, since you grew up political, um, around two political professionals, um, would you say that you adopted more of your dad's style, more of your mom's style? Um, you know, what, what, what do you do in the same ways that they, one or the other of them did? And, and what do you think, you know, where you've sort of, you know, gone off on your own path, maybe? That's interesting. I'm not, um, you know, probably in the best position to sort of characterize my own style or to characterize my parents' <laughs> style. You know, sometimes when you're so close to something, sure. it's a little hard to really see it. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say that one of the things that I've I've tried to do is I've tried to, uh, you know, keep in focus, you know, just how short each of our lives are, you yeah. know, particularly our political lives and our, our, our window to have an effect on the system is narrow. And it's mm -hmm. narrower than it was uh, a couple, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Sure. And so, you know, part of, I think, one of the differences, I guess I would highlight is that, you know, back in the day, pre-term limits, mm -hmm. it was a little easier to, you know, um, work issues in a more deliberate and contemplative and slower way, I guess is what I'm really trying to say, just slower. Yeah. And nowadays, uh, you know, I think that the realities of the law require me to be a little more, um, a little more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things I really admire about about my mom, uh, who has been also involved, as you mentioned, for a long time, is she's incredibly detail-oriented, and, um, you know, she's one of those people that when, you know, she walks into the room to talk about something, uh, you know, she's one of the folks who knows the most about it, and, and I, I try to do that. I mean, that's certainly yeah. my goal. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I always get there, but um, I'm genuinely very, very curious about policy, and so I spend a lot of time really trying to learn about these issues so that uh, I can bring some real information to the table. Sure. Uh, that's particularly important when you're in the minority, I think, because there's a real asymmetry of power. And so, Absolutely. you know, being able to, to know the issue just a little bit better so that you can make your point a little more forcefully or a little more succinctly or in a way that the other side can hear a little better, all of that's very important. And, yeah. and so that's why I really try to know the issues as well as I can and you know, talk to the experts and really try to take it in. Yeah, absolutely. So you, your father represented the Upper Peninsula, uh, up in the Sioux area, and then you end up in college at the University of Michigan. Why'd you stay in Washtenaw County for your political involvement? That's a that's a tough pool to swim in. It's a very competitive. There, it's a very politically active county. Um, a lot more politically engaged than some other areas in the state. Probably would have been easier for you if you were going to, you know, pursue a career in public service to do it somewhere else. Why'd you stay in Ann Arbor? Yeah, it was absolutely not deliberate. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the the simple answer is just I really love Ann Arbor. I yeah. love Ypsilanti too. I mean, Washington County is a great place. There's a lot of uh, really cool things happening there. You know, ultimately it is a small midwestern town that has a lot of that nice feel and collegiality, but it also punches above its weight a little bit. And, and I agree. You know, there's a lot of interesting things happening there. There's you know cultural things happening. It's 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 a cool town. I like that about. It. That's part of what what kept me in Ann Arbor um, in Washington County. And it is a little bit interesting because if you look at most of the legislators who, you know, had a parent in the legislature, mm -hmm. they tend to run in the same Absolutely. Right? Because there's a certain value to that. There's a certain, you know, you, you get name recognition and people already know you. Um, nobody in Washington County. Uh, new Senator Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. No, I knew <laughs> my father until now. Until now. You know, he's, he's a constituent of yeah, yours he now. He just recently moved into town, actually. Um, just moved from Williamston to so it's great to have him as a constituent. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, nobody in Washington County really knew him, especially when I first got started in 1999 and into the county board. And so in a sense, I moved as far away from the sort of political base and in, in, in my family's base uh, up in the Upper Peninsula because 
I mean, I guess you can geographically get further apart from Ann Arbor and Sault Ste. Marie in the state of Michigan, but you can't get much further apart ideologically. Uh, those communities are very, very different in terms of how they approach politics uh, in just about every way. So I, you know, I guess the answer to the question is it wasn't particularly intentional. I do love Washington County. I've, I've really loved living there. But it was just that you know I came to the university. I started getting involved. Yeah, I, I ran for local office. And, and then when I was able to be successful with that, that really sucked me into the fabric of the community. And, and, and I've been really fortunate uh, to be as involved as I have. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, well, so you uh, you actually took care of the transition for me here. You know, you mentioned the uh, the sort of ideological and are, are you even cultural differences between Sault Ste. Marie and Ann Arbor. During your time in the House, you were consistently ranked one of the more liberal members of the legislature. Um, and yet you had some success developing relationships and working on policy with some extremely conservative lawmakers. Um, what's your approach to to working with people that you disagree with about a whole lot of stuff? And how does that make you know bipartisanship possible? Yeah, I, I think the way you ask the question is important. You know, what's your approach to disagreeing? Right. And I think that's, that is kind of where it starts because there's I have a tremendous amount of disagreement with uh, particularly my Republican colleagues and even a lot of my Democratic colleagues right. about policy. Uh, but one of the things I always try hard to do, and hopefully I'm successful with, hopefully when I'm done with this, people can say that, that I was good at this. I try not to personalize it. I try to mm -hmm. keep it about the issues. I try not to keep it about the motivations of the people who are pushing it. Because that's, I think that's when you start to get into ugly territory, when you start trying to ascribe negative motivations. You start tr you start trying to characterize the other people as some sort of demon, you know, or some sort of um, you know, like bad guy, quote unquote. Right. Uh, I don't think that's particularly helpful. It's and, and it's definitely unhelpful when you're trying to maintain relationships on other issues. So, you know, my general approach is when we agree, we're going to agree strenuously. When we disagree, we're going to disagree strenuously, and the next issue is the next issue. The first the issue before doesn't have to pollute the issue afterwards. The other thing I think is really important in terms of maintaining that is being honest with people. Yeah, uh, you know, just being straightforward with people, telling them what you really think, not trying to play games with folks in terms of you know what's happening in committee or any of that. I just I just try to come really straight with my uh, colleagues, you know, tell them exactly what I think, try to be honest about the areas that I, I have holes in my knowledge around the issues, mm -hmm. and then also try to be forcible, forceful about the areas where you know, I think they're wrong. And, and I try to convince them, and when I don't, well, then, then there's the next issue. Right. right? Uh, so I, I've been fortunate to build a lot of good friendships across the aisle. The other thing that's really important, I think, is identifying areas where there is agreement and then, you know, actively working on that agreement. You know, for instance, one of the things where I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for uh, coalition is on clean energy. Sure. You know, there's 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 a tremendous amount of money to be made in this sector. Uh, the state of Michigan would be smart to be leaders in this growing, exploding economic opportunity. And it's only going to get bigger as the clock rolls forward. Sure. And, uh, you know, a lot of conservatives see that. A lot of business people know and understand that. And uh, that creates an opportunity for us to work together. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how the Energy Freedom Coalition was born. And, uh, you know, that's how, um, you know, some of us who want to allow people to invest in clean energy uh, got together. Uh, criminal justice reform is another area sure. where there's yeah. just tremendous opportunity for uh, bipartisan work. And a lot of that's already happening. And so it's... it's um, it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, e e even our president, who I know you and I have some pretty strenuous disagreements with, speaking of, um, you know, signed a pretty important corrections reform bill. I think you're right. That's a that's an area where Democrats and Republicans really can work together quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we're getting to that space for the same reasons. Sometimes we're getting to that space for different reasons. But, uh, you know, we need to find those areas of agreement and work on them and get them done, get some positive things happening. That, that's our job. Yeah. And so um, I think you partly answered this. Um, I'm always real interested in how people approach bipartisanship. Do you start from areas of agreement and kind of work your way out from there? Or do you approach it having in mind, this is a place where I'm willing to make some amount of compromise. I'm not coming all the way to your side. I mean, do, do you start from those areas of agreement or do you go into this planning like, you know, if I had to cut a deal on this part of this, I'd be OK as long as this stuff's protected. I think it really depends on the issue. Sure. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I'm very interested in is tax policy that's more fair to low income workers. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing where right now the tax system really benefits the wealthy and it really hammers the lowest 20 percent of earners in terms of the percentage of income that they pay into supporting our roads and schools and everything else. And that's the sort of issue that I walk into thinking if I can get some relief for these low income workers, that's important. And if cutting a deal to get that relief is, is what has to happen 
then then great. You know, that I think that's something where, you know, you can move the slider around on the scale and you can argue about how much is exactly appropriate and, uh, and whatnot. And there are other issues where I think that um, there's less room for agreement. Like, for instance, you know, the governor said during the state of the state, nobody should be fired because of who they were. That, I, don't, I don't know where the room to negotiate is on that. Sure. That is such like a fundamental issue of people's rights yeah. that, 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 you know, I don't, I don't think you can start talking about, well, let's give them half of their rights. It, it, it's just, <laughs> yeah. these, there, there are some things that just uh, don't lend themselves to that kind of compromise, and there are some that do. Right, yeah, certainly there are uh, certain things that are really all or nothing issues, right? Um, that's one of the things, um, and I think you may have heard this spiel from me before. I, I've talked about it on a different, uh, different podcast, too. It's one of the reasons that I always worked in appropriations, because there was always that room for compromise, right? It's just money. Somebody gets a little bit more, somebody gets a little less. That's right. As long as my priorities are being seen to, well, I can live with that. I think around things like LGBT rights or, you know, regardless of where you fall on it, the abortion issue, there's, you know, there's not really half a loaf to be had there. Yeah. yeah. Or voting right. You know, there's, there's certain things that just are really fundamental. Uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, I think that's kind of how I, I look at that. Yeah, that's great. So your term in the House was all spent under unified Republican control. You mentioned that before. What do you see as the best opportunities for bipartisan accomplishment between this legislature, which is still controlled by Republicans, and our new governor? Yeah, well, I, I think we've already covered this ground. I mean, the two that stand out to me most are clean energy and criminal justice reform. Now, if you would asked me this a week ago, mm-hmm. I probably would have also talked about drinking water and PFAS. Yeah. But I'm starting to doubt or I'm starting to get less hopeful about the ability to work together on that issue based on everything that's happened over the course of the last week with respect to the governor's executive order and the fight against it. You know, what gives me hope about that is that, you know, we've got real problems with pollution in you know, in Oscoda and in Rockford and in Traverse City and in all sorts of places where, yeah. you know, those constituents who are drinking that PFAS water, uh, they've got Republican representatives and senators. And, uh, you know, that in and of itself made me think, you know, maybe we can really get some positive work going on this. But I still have some hope, but it's been diminished a bit by the, the last week and the fight over the executive order. Sure. Um, so what about the, the governor's signature campaign promise? Fix the damn Fix roads. Fix the damn roads. Um, I mean, do you, do you really see any daylight there? I mean, I know that both parties since the election, even before the election, but certainly since the election, have been talking about, yeah, we need to fix the roads. We need to fix the roads. I'm from the outside looking in. You're actually in there pushing red and green every day. I don't see a whole lot of give there right now. Maybe your impression's different. I mean, how do you see that? Well, let me say a couple contradictory things about this. I love it. One is, I I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, the problem has been the problem for decades, and it's still the problem. Uh, The legislators don't want to vote for revenue. And, you know, particularly the Republican legislators don't want to vote for revenue, and they've been in control of the legislature since 83. You know, that's that's still the fundamental problem. Nobody likes paying more gas taxes. It's not popular. It's one of the least popular things. Uh, and so that makes it really, really difficult to get it done. Now, the, what the legislature should have been doing for many, many years was passing really small increases on a regular basis. That would make a lot more sense. It would be a lot more politically palatable. But we've now gone for 35 years, really, without doing much, except for that seven and a half cents a few years ago. Uh, and we're way behind in terms of road funding. And I, I, I share your skepticism that we're going to get revenue votes out of this legislature. I think it's it's going to be very, very difficult. Here's the contradictory statement. Sure. I think that oftentimes we look at this issue in isolation. And it's really, really difficult to get revenue uh, for roads to fix them properly when we look at it in isolation. We've got a similar problem with school finance. Yeah. School finance is an utter disaster. I don't know anybody who really defends Proposal A. Uh, it, it creates huge problems with equity. It create, it's created huge problems with the sufficiency of dollars available to support our schools. And so, you know, maybe there's a way to put, uh, to, to go bigger rather than to go smaller, rather than looking for a number of little small wins along the way. Maybe there's a way to tie all this together into some sort of grand bargain that can, that can really, you know, be big enough to, to move people to, to, to do what's necessary. I'm actually glad to hear you say that. That's a hobby horse that I have been uh, beating on for a little while in private conversations with folks. I think that's really the only way you solve this is that you have to go bigger. Um, You know, a good example of that is, you know, people, especially a lot of your Republican colleagues will talk about, well, we don't want to raise the gas tax. We want to make sure all that money is going to the roads. What happens when you do that? It comes out of the school aid fund, you know, and the 
the root of a large part of this problem, I don't want to say most, but a large part of this problem is, in fact, proposal A. Yeah. And so I do think that the problem, it's difficult politically either way, but I think it becomes a little more soluble when you look at a global solution. Nobody is going to vote for a deal that's going to gut the school aid fund to fix the roads. If we have a deal that's going to both adequately fund public education and fix the roads, it might be a little easier to scrape those votes together. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, let's think about the school aid fund. Go back to 2011, and we cut $750 million of revenue out of the school aid fund. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of that could come back to the table. And plus, now, you know, roll the clock forward seven years, and, you know, we've got a huge chunk of the higher ed budgets now supported out of school aid. If you were to take the sales tax money that currently goes to schools from transportation fuels, put that with transportation and roads, and then, you know, find a way to plug that billion-dollar hole that was made in the school aid fund by that move, you could do that by, by, by pulling some of that higher ed money out. Now, the problem is now you got to make higher ed whole. Right. right. And so, I, you know, but I, I think there's a way to, to do that. And maybe part of it is the governor's suggestion around, uh, you know, guaranteed college access uh, for two-year um, um, community college access. Uh, you know, maybe there's a way to to enliven that, make that a little bit bigger, and roll it in with those other two, so that you know it all works. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's impossible. And um, you know, the beauty of that is that it has to go to the voters, right? You know, and so the legislature could put it all together and put it on the ballot and say, "Hey, we think this is preferable to the current reality," and um, you know, then hopefully the voters would would be willing to vote for that. So that's that's a couple contradictory thoughts. I think it's gonna be very very difficult. But, um, you know, maybe if we go bigger and do sort of a grand solution, we can address our school finance difficulties at the same time as we're addressing our pothole tax. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there. I, it's hard to envision a scenario where we're going to adequately address roads, public education, higher education, without putting that in front of the voters. You know, a professor of mine in grad school uh, had this uh, really great saying, right? John F. Kennedy wrote this book called Profiles in Courage mm -hmm. about politicians who are willing to take a vote, do what they thought was right, no matter what the political consequences it. were. It's a really short book. <laughs> um, and that's true for a reason. It's hard to envision out of the 148 Michigan lawmakers finding majorities in both chambers that are willing to walk the plank on something like that. But um, designing a global solution and putting it in front of the voters, that might just work. Yeah, so that's yeah, you know, that's one of the. It's interesting that you've been talking about that. Um, it's one of the things I've been, you know, chatting with people casually about. Like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe if we're struggling to get this done as pieces, maybe there's a way to get it done, putting it all all the pieces together. It's um, it seems like it would be more difficult, but I think given uh, you know the difficulty of all these little pieces, it might actually be easier. Yeah, I think that there's something to that. I think the the politics get more manageable, even though you. You're dealing with more problems. There are more pieces to shuffle around on the board to make it happen. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, getting back to the community that you represent. So Washtenaw County is incredibly diverse, um, both in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of income levels, just in terms of the types of communities. I mean, Ypsilanti is very different from Ann Arbor, is very different from Manchester, is very different from Chelsea. How do you, as an elected official... How do you go about trying to represent all of that diversity in your work as a lawmaker in Lansing? Yeah, so first, I'll just say, uh, I don't have Western Washington. So no, that's I, right. I don't have Ch Manchester or Chelsea or Dexter or any of that. But I do have Celine and Milan right. and Salem Township. I do have some some areas that you know I think we could call rural. Sure. Although it's a far cry from the type of rural that I was used to. Uh, you know, like a Rudyard is a whole different kind of rural. Right. Yeah, it's not the UP. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different kind of rural. So how do I do that? You know, basically my process is just to be very present in those communities, particularly the communities I haven't represented before. Uh, I did this, I think, very aggressively during my campaign, but I, I'm continuing that now. So one of the things I've done is I've reached out to every single elected official uh, for all these jurisdictions and said, look, I want to you know, come to your board and give a little presentation. I want to come and meet with you personally. I want to understand. I want to know what you know about your community. Mm -hmm. you know, what are the things? And so when I sit down with these officials, I'm asking them, you know, well, what do you want me to do? What do I need to know about your community? Uh, trying to, A, build a relationship so they feel comfortable calling me. Should there be something that comes up that they need me to know about and that I want to know about? And also, it just gets me out in those communities. So that's my, that's my main process is just to be present, to be available, and to build relationships in all those communities. Uh, it is a little different, though. Uh, you know, one of the things I think is really true about Ann Arbor is that, uh, you know, 
Ann Arbor has its share of folks who are struggling economically, but it's a very affluent community. It is. And there are areas in my district now that uh, are much less affluent. Uh, and there are some areas mm-hmm. in my district now that are, um, you know, downright poverty stricken. And, yeah. and so that is, that's something that I've always cared about. It's something that has always been a chip on my shoulder, you know, since being a little kid, you grow up in trailer parks and stuff like that. I just kind of got this sense of like, you got to fight for the little guy. Yeah. You know, that's kind of comes naturally to me. Sure. But now it's a little different and I've got a little bit additional motivation and a little bit additional connection to those needs. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm trying to understand as thoroughly as possible. And, and you know, one of the opportunities I think I have is that uh, one of the committee assignments I was really excited about was being able to sit on the appropriations subcommittee for community health and health services, which that has a lot of uh, touch with you know, people who are struggling, you know, the Medicaid community and others. So mm-hmm. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for me to find some system improvements and, you know, bring them to the administration to find some opportunities to invest dollars to help people better and you know, bring those to the committee. That's one of the things that I'm really excited about and I think lines up really well with, you know, the district I represent. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So how do constituent concerns differ between the different communities that you represent or do they? I mean, is it is it pretty universal that folks are concerned about the same thing or do you get very different constituent calls and requests from Ann Arbor than you do from, say, you know, Ipsy? And not really. I would say that for the most part, it's pretty similar. And, and you know, I've done political work all over the state. I've knocked on a lot of doors all over the state for all sorts of people, yeah. uh, both parties and mm-hmm. in every corner of the state. And one of the things I think is really true is that people are basically the same thing. Yeah. It, it's really, people have pretty similar concerns and goals. One, But, but there are some differences. So one thing that is um, really you know, very different and that I would focus on is the attitude about car insurance. Oh, sure. Um, you know, if you look at Michigan's average car insurance rate and you compare it to our neighbors or the nation, it's high, mm-hmm. right? But if then if you start to look at certain communities, it's not high anymore, right? right? So there are some communities in our state where the rates are actually not high. They're pretty normal with the national averages or something even below the national. Mm-hmm. I don't pay that much for car insurance. Right. Uh, and um, <laughs> then there are other communities right. which happen to be as far as I know, always low-income communities of color mm-hmm. that have incredibly higher rates. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of the redlining that the insurance companies do. Their rate-setting process results in a situation where uh, people in communities that fit that description pay rates that are insane and outrageous. Sure. And uh, you know, I've often, I've, I've for a long time been on board with legislation that would prohibit the use of redlining and credit scores and other non-driving factors in the setting of rates because I think that would improve the health of our entire insurance pool in the state by making insurance more affordable to a whole set of people who right now are completely priced out of the market. So having said all that, that's all sort of a backdrop for the idea that you know Ann Arbor is one of those communities where rates are pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. Ypsilanti, particularly 4897, 48198, are zip codes where rates are really high. Yeah, and the people there have the least ability to afford it, and so that is that's one difference that I've noticed. People in every part of my district care about schools, think that we've disinvested in K twelve, and they they know that their local school is the most important thing to the future of their community. Mm-hmm. I hear that everywhere. Sure, I everywhere I hear people who are concerned about their drinking water. They're concerned about recreation opportunities for their kids. They're concerned about uh, their roads and the state of it. But one of the things that's different in my community: some communities are really concerned about auto insurance rates. Other communities are not as as attuned to that because the rates they're paying are, are pretty pretty normal. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's um, yeah. I definitely know folks that pay a whole lot for car insurance. You know, friends that I have in Detroit, and Ypsilanti, and some other places. You know, I live in Podunk, Little Mason, Michigan, and uh, yeah, my insurance is very reasonable. And I mean, I've I've gotten some tickets. I've been in a couple accidents over the last ten years. My insurance isn't bad. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so. What do you think that the rest of Michigan can learn from Washtenaw County? You know, I I worked with you when you were a Washtenaw County commissioner, and obviously when you were a state lawmaker. Um, Washtenaw County is a little different. You know, I think, and not just Ann Arbor, right? Ann Arbor's obviously, there's a perception of, you know, the People's Republic of Ann Arbor. It's this super far left community, and there's some element of truth to that. Um, I think some of that's very overblown. As you mentioned, Ann Arbor's a very affluent community and i think that influences some people's views as well we Um, fake left but run right (laughs) maybe it's just right down the middle three yards in a cloud of dust yeah i'm trying to relive the beauchamp beckler days (laughs) Uh, that town's been trying to relive the beauchamp beckler days for a number of years but what do you think the rest of the state can learn from washington county or from some of the communities in it 
That's an interesting question. I, I, I certainly wouldn't characterize it that way, right? I mean, we all have a lot to learn from each other. Sure. But since you asked the question, uh, you know, one of the things that I think sets Ann Arbor apart and makes Ann Arbor a really successful place is its embrace of diversity and its embrace of the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and its embrace of you know new ideas and innovation. Uh, you know, part of that is born out of just having one of the world's best institutions of higher learning, you know, right there headquartered in town. I mean, the influence of that it, it has to be mentioned. Uh, but there's definitely a philosophical bent in Ann Arbor that's sort of like a, a live, live and let live attitude sure. that I think actually um, could have sway in every corner of the state. Right. I mean, sure. I, a lot of my very conservative friends, they're very libertarian. They, they agree with all this stuff about, you know, like, mm. you know, let people do what they want to do. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's something that I think, you know, I'd like to communicate to you know, from Washtenaw County to everybody else in the state is that you really stand to gain by being an open, welcoming place. Yeah. The state stands to gain sure. by being an open world. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, it's been interesting for me to see the business community starting to make some of that case, particularly yeah. around LGBT issues. But just in general, I think the business community has been making the diversity case. Not just this is the right thing to do, but we're all going to benefit from this. Yeah. Um, and that's been, I think, an interesting change. You know, my perception growing up when I was first getting involved in politics was that the business community is just Republican, full stop. And I think there was some element of truth to that to a certain extent, although I, I think that's a little overblown. But it's been a very interesting shift that businesses have picked up on the economic case for diversity. And certainly you see a ton of that emanating from Ann Arbor um, and from Washtenaw County in general. The business community there really gets that and has, I think, been able to capitalize on it. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second piece would be the sustainability piece. As time goes on, we're not becoming less and less concerned about climate change. We're becoming more and more concerned about it. As time goes on, we're not finding out that these chemicals that we're awash in are less dangerous. We're finding out that they're more dangerous. We're finding out that, you know, the cancer that is killing our loved ones, the ADHD that, you know, is on the rise, you know, maybe even, you know, some of these other ailments that we're seeing on the rise are connected to our environment. And that understanding is only growing across the nation and the world. And we would be smart to get ahead of that curve. And I think that's what Washington County has tried to do. And I think it's been tremendously beneficial, you know, uh, culturally, but also economically. There's just a tremendous amount to be gained financially from being on the front end of that curve. Well, and that's actually, that's a very good point. And it ties back into the uh, the innovation piece that you were talking about before. I remember working with you many moons ago on property assessed clean energy, yep. you know, allowing homeowners and businesses we didn't uh, manage to get homeowners into it when uh, when we made our run into it, but allowing folks to take on a special assessment on their taxes to finance energy efficiency and renewable energy improvements on their properties. That was that idea and its transit through the state legislature started in your district. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first conversation I had with that uh, about that issue on Main Street. And so actually, uh, I'm going to be introducing a bill pretty soon to extend PACE financing opportunities to residential property owners. Uh, we've got a tremendous inventory of older housing stock mm-hmm. uh, in Michigan. I mean, we, Michigan is just a, a more mature state. It's one of the challenges we face is our industrial uh, facilities, our commercial facilities, and our residential facilities are all just very old. Yeah. Um, and there's some advantages to that, but it's mostly uh, it's an expensive thing. And yeah. so, uh, but one of the big disadvantages is that when those buildings were built and when those homes were built, they were not built with um, all of the uh, energy efficiency opportunities taken advantage of. And so that's frustrating. We're wasting billions of dollars right now as we speak just because our buildings are so poorly insulated. Our windows are, you know, you know it's all about the R value. Yeah. And so if, if we could put a ton of people to work mm-hmm. in good jobs, building tangible improvements to our homes that all pays for itself within a 10-year time horizon, right. this to me is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, and we should do it. We should be doing more of that, and the state should be doing more with energy efficiency in its buildings. Local governments should be encouraged to do that. School districts have huge opportunities to save money, and the whole state of Michigan can save billions of dollars by investing in people who are, once again, going to be getting good-paying jobs doing this work, making long-term tangible improvements to our communities, and it all pays for itself. So this is one of the things I love about talking to you is going deep on policy tangents. So do you think that there is a role for the feds to play in this? And I ask because one of our new congressmen from Michigan, Andy Levin, was running a PACE business 
before he got elected. Is there a role for the feds to play in encouraging that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the <laughs> right now, the feds have made it really difficult to do uh, pace financing through the way that Fannie and Freddie handle mortgages with these encumbrances. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the simplest thing would be for the federal government to consider a uh, PACE-based special assessment, to consider that encumbrance the same way that they consider other encumbrances, like a special assessment for Aside drainage or yeah. sidewalks or whatever, right? Uh, and in fact, I would think as someone who's shopped for homes before, if I saw that I was buying a home and it had a special assessment for a sidewalk, I'd be a lot more frustrated by that special assessment than if I bought a home and saw that it has a special assessment for energy efficiency that then I could see was actually saving $100 a month on the energy bill. Sure. Because as a home buyer, I'm thinking, well, yeah, sure, I'm paying $80 a month, but I'm saving 100 You know, this is seems right. like a good deal. Yeah, the math right? seems right. <laughs> right. And so that's that's what I'm all about is finding that sweet spot where, you know, you get that triple bottom line win. It's just, you know, it's good for the economy. It saves money. It's... You heard it here first, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Ultra-liberal Jeff Irwin just said triple bottom line. I love it. <laughs> you don't get that anywhere but the Grassroots Midwest podcast. Um, all right, so another issue I want to ask you about, because I know it's something that you've worked on for a long time and you were intimately involved in this ballot initiative, was the legalization of recreational marijuana. I figured we'd get here. Uh, yeah, of course. So, like I said, this is an issue that you've worked on for quite a while. Um, we're still struggling to implement a regulatory regime for medical marijuana in the state. You have concerns about the state getting the regulatory process right for that, and do those same concerns apply to recreational marijuana, particularly as rec sales um, start to take effect? I have tremendous concerns, and I'm hoping to have an opportunity to work through those concerns with the administration. I think the important place to start is that you know we passed the Medical Marijuana Act in 2008. You know, a lot of people thought that the way that the act was written, it would allow sales and dispensaries and that sort of thing. And in some communities, it was allowed. In some communities, those people uh, you know, were closed down. Other communities, those people were sent to jail. Mm-hmm. And it took the legislature, I guess, eight years or six or seven years to finally pass something that created a regime for uh, regulating medical marijuana. And unfortunately, when that finally was passed, it was passed with a whole bevy of just breathless, silly regulations added on. And as a result, Laura has been, I think, somewhat understandably choking on the nonsense that the legislature sent them. Sure. The requirements that we're putting in place for these businesses are so far above and beyond what is required for you know any type of other business. Mm-hmm. The level of strenuousness that the regulators are putting into this process is completely out of proportion with the potential harms to society from these businesses operating. And so, yeah, the state has really bungled the rollout of the medical law. And, you know, there's been a real bottleneck at the department because of the volume of information that they're requesting. The kinds of things that they're denying licensees based on. I saw a license the other day that was based on someone who didn't report a ticket from more than a decade ago about hunting on Sunday. Did you see that one? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I understand you want people to disclose all their all their tickets and stuff, but it's somewhat understandable that someone might not remember a hunting on Sunday ticket that they got. I, I, I don't know. To me, it just seems a little overwrought, you know. And also, even if even if that is an issue, why couldn't the department have communicated that to the applicant early on in the process and, you know, satisfy that error and, you know, rather than just rejecting it months after they got it and now basically telling those applicants, well, maybe in a few months we might consider you again, right? So the process has just been incredibly slow and overwrought. And then the fact that the legislature created insane fees Mm -hmm. for these businesses, it gives a huge, huge, huge advantage to the black market, and it makes it really hard for the legal operators to survive. Uh, And then we created this board that, you know, can grant or reject permits based on things like, you know, people's moral turpitude and any sort of subjective, you know, they have complete authority to grant or not grant licenses based on anything. And it's just been, it's just been a, 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 a disaster, really. Okay, so I would love it if you know the new governor could you know make sure that that process works, such that we have enough licensed operators that you can have a normal functioning industry, and so that consumers can be protected, and so that public health can be protected, and uh, and so that more of this activity happens in the regulated space. You know, it's just it's just it's just too much. 
uh, when it comes to you know the recreational law or the adult use law that is 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 in effect now, that law does require the department to have licenses, you know, license applications out by the end of the year. You know, I hope that the department takes a more aggressive approach than that. The initiative allows them to have license applications out last week if they wanted. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the really obvious problems that happened in the medical piece was that when the department started getting applicants from prospective licensees, they didn't sequence the applicants in any sort of logical way, right? Mm-hmm. So normally you'd think that, okay, if we want to have medical marijuana on a shelf somewhere, mm-hmm. someone has to grow that medical marijuana. Correct. And that takes, let's say, six months, you know, to get it from seed to, Sale. to yeah, cured and ready to go. So why didn't they license a nice chunk of cultivators early on so that when they started licensing the dispensaries that there was actually product for them to buy and enough of it for them to buy uh, they didn't do any of that. And it's, that's been a huge part of the problem. So the same thing's going to happen in, in the adult use environment if Lara doesn't authorize a large number of cultivators now or in the next month and a half, two months, you know, maybe 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 June 1. If we don't have those people going by June 1, we're going to have a problem in January because there's not going to be any product. Sure. So based on the experience with medical, I mean, how do you prevent that? Is this an issue of the department not talking to the right folks from the industry or their prospective industry? Um, is Obviously, there was a lot more mucking around by the legislature in the medical space. I mean, is that what's generating the problems? Is it some problem with the department's approach after all of that extra layer of regulation was added by the legislature? Is it a combination? Uh, it, well, it may be a combination, but I place most of the blame on on the legislature. I mean, the task that they gave to Laura uh, was was a difficult one, and the level of stringency and reporting requirements that we included in those laws uh, was great. And then also, by creating this political board that oversees all the licenses, that's like another bottleneck stopping point. Mm-hmm. And then the governor saw fit to appoint people who, at least some of whom, seemed to just not want the industry to exist. Right. You, know, you, you put all those things together and it's just been a really toxic, dysfunctional situation. Now, when we wrote Proposal 1, we wrote it in such a way where I think we've given the state more tools to be successful. Mm-hmm. We really put the Lara director in the driver's seat in terms of determining when these things were going to go out and you know what sort of considerations were to be included and not included. And we did give the, the department you know a fair amount of authority to set those rules, but we also didn't require them to consider a whole bunch of stuff that they don't need to. Sure. Uh, let me just give you one example of something that I really don't like that the legislature did that I haven't mentioned yet. Mm-hmm. We included capitalization requirements. So that means you have to have a certain amount of money to open the business. Now, me, naive Democrat that I am, I'm running around the legislature in 2016 saying, hey, this is going to shut out all the small businesses. This is going to shut out the mom and pop stores. This is going to mean they can't compete against somebody from California with a giant pile of money. That was the point, right? And I couldn't get, that may have been the point, <laughs> but I couldn't get my Republican <laughs> colleagues to sort of, you know, say, yeah, we need to stand, let's stand up for small business here. Let's make sure that people from Michigan, people who aren't already rich, have at least a chance to compete in this space. That's not how we set it up. I think that's wrong. Yeah. So... Is it the case, then, you think, that the legislature needs to revisit the medical law? Yes. Or do they just need to get it right for rec sales, and that's going to swap the medical law over time? Mm, um, I think yes to both of those. Actually. Okay, yeah, that's um, a fine answer. So, you know, first off, we should align the MMFLA with Proposal 1. That makes sense. We should do that. Um, and I, I'd love to work with any colleagues who, who are willing to work with me on that. I, I think that... Uh, you know, that law can be amended with a simple majority. There's some things in there that we really just don't need, and it should be aligned with the adult use law. I also think that what's going to happen eventually is that as the adult use market gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the, uh, you know, more and more customers will, you know, gravitate towards that. And I think that for your average medical customer, you know, if they can get what they need at a good price, they don't care what storefront they're going into. Yeah. And so I do think to some extent, if the adult use market is successful enough in bringing the black market into this regulated space, then um, then a lot of uh, medical marijuana customers will end up getting their supply from those adult use purveyors just by virtue of sort of availability and convenience. So, and that, that presents an interesting conundrum in that, so I've talked to a number of folks who are operating in the medical marijuana space. I just talked to one that's um, in your district, actually, a few days ago. And at least the operators I've dealt with seem to pride themselves on 
you know, having a very patient-centered, interactive experience to help people get medicine that's going to work for them. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like that might get lost if everybody just ends up in adult use shops at the end of the day. I mean, do you yeah. think that there's a danger of that? I do. Uh, you know, I think that that's a very astute observation, and I think that that may be uh, you know, a potential unintended negative consequence of this you know, market moving into legal space, the illicit space. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a concern. Um, I, I've met a lot of operators in this space who, who really you know, care a lot about their patients. They've yeah. really stuck their neck out for people, particularly over these years where what they've been doing is you know, not, not clearly um, authorized. Yeah, there have been people uh, that have gone to jail trying to help people that absolutely. need medicine. Absolutely. And so I, I hope we don't lose that. And I think that there's going to be some purveyors who, who hold on to that. But it really, it, you know, the story is being written as we speak, right? And yeah. we'll, see, we'll see how this, this rolls out. You know, there's also a lot of people who think that, uh, you know, those big players from California and Colorado and Washington and Oregon are going to move in and they're going to, you know, take over the whole Michigan market and it's going to be corporate cannabis and now it's all going to be the same and it's going to be homogenized like the stuff that you get um, from the Canadian government. And uh, who knows? Maybe. that that Maybe. Right? I mean, for some reason, Walmarts just crush it. People love Walmarts. They go to Walmarts all the time. I do not. Yeah. I do not. I try to support my local retailers as right. much as I can. I try to even spend cash so that they don't have to pay that awful 2 or 4% to Visa. Yeah. Right? But some consumers don't care about any of that. Some consumers just want to go buy the cheapest possible thing at the big box store. And, and, and some and, of them don't have a choice. I mean, they're, you know, if you're on a limited enough income, you're going to go buy, you know, you're going to go buy diapers, whoever's selling them the cheapest. Absolutely. Um, but in the process, we are, we are cannibalizing ourselves. And will that happen in this market? Maybe, but I hope not. Sure. You know, yeah, no, I think that's um, there are a lot of really interesting uh, issues yet to be worked out in that marketplace. And it's um, it's frankly pretty remarkable how fast all of this has moved, not just in Michigan, but around the country. I mean, really, the only other analog in terms of the speed with which an issue has moved in modern politics, I think, is gay rights. Um, yeah. The cannabis issue has just moved lightning fast. It has. It has. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one, cannabis prohibition was really foolish and a giant wasteful failure that destroyed a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And two is the internet. Yeah. You know, it used to be that the prohibitionists could run around and tell all sorts of silly lies about, you know, what was going to happen or, you know, what this was going to do to your kids or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's, it's hard out there now. Yeah. It's hard to sustain those lies now. Anybody can just go on Google and find out, oh, how many people have overdosed and died from marijuana in the history of humans? <laughs> Zero. Okay. All right. Well, that kind of puts the lie to some of the things I've heard. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's a big piece of it. Right. And, um, yeah, you know, you're right. Sometimes, uh, you know, people are people do need to find the lowest prices. Uh, so I'll put in an advertisement for Kroger, good union company, UFCW. I do like Kroger quite a bit. <laughs> well, and that's interesting. So, and I, um, I wonder how this is going to work. Um, we'll stop talking about cannabis in a second, but this is, you know, I've, I've done some work with some um, folks around this issue um, through Grassroots Midwest. One of the things that I think is um, super interesting sort of looking forward in this marketplace is what you mentioned, you know, these, these big corporations from other states that have, for better or worse, they've figured out how to scale. What do you think about those corporations coming into Michigan to serve the marketplace? Is that desirable? I think generally speaking, when you've got some group of people, whether they're from California or Beijing or Singapore or Egypt or Romania, who want to come to Michigan and bring a big pile of money and invest it in jobs and development here. I, I think we ought to take a look at that with a positive light and think, Hey, maybe, maybe this is good for our state. Yeah. So the idea that people would be bringing resources here to, to, to invest in businesses, I think that's generally good. Um, you know, having said that, I do think that there's going to be sort of a, you know, a fight for the soul of this industry going forward. And one of the reasons why when we were writing proposal one, a lot of the advocates really fought hard for, uh, the marijuana micro business opportunity, mm -hmm. which is a new sort of licensing element that we added, sort of like a brew pub for cannabis. Sure. Um, one of the reasons we added that was specifically because we wanted to give Michigan-based people who didn't have a giant pile of money already an opportunity to compete in that space, right? Sure. And once again, if 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 the Walmart of weed is what people want, those it's going to be hard for those people to be successful. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't presume to know what consumers want broadly, uh, but I do think that there are some there are some elements of uh, cannabis that lend itself to you know some of those smaller boutique operations being successful 
And it's the same sort of reasons around, you know, why craft beer has been such a, a movement and has, has just been so successful in Michigan. So I, I, I think, you know, just based on what I know about this, I think you might get a situation very similar to beer where there is a smaller but very active and very robust sort of craft universe. Yeah. And then there's a larger, um, you know, but not completely dominant sort of the Bud Light or like Walmart of Weed kind of thing. No, that's perfect. That uh, that analogy makes perfect sense to me. Um, Anheuser-Busch is always going to sell a lot of Budweiser, and I am not going to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is, yeah, very good. Um, so one thing we like to do on the podcast is we like to get our guests to share war stories about amusing, interesting, unusual experiences that they've had campaigning for themselves, for other people. You know, maybe you got a fun story from the, uh, you know, the Proposal 1 campaign last time. I mean, you grew up in around politics, so I imagine you've heard some good stories. Maybe they're not all fit for uh, public consumption or whatever, but uh, tell us about something fun that's happened to you on a campaign or something weird. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with something good that's you know, also sort of like safe for work or whatever. Right. But um, I, I don't know. But one, one thing that always strikes me uh, was that when I was running my first state rep the first time, I had a neighbor who lived a couple of streets over from me, and she was very helpful. You know, she knocked on some doors for me, talked to some neighbors, and was a very excited mm-hmm. uh, campaign volunteer and, and helper. And so I really valued her help. Well, then I got elected, and six months later or so, I sent out my first newsletter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I promptly get an email from her. And um, she writes me this email that says, uh, Jeff, I just got your newsletter. Mm-hmm. I really don't like that you've decided to color your hair. I don't, I've never known you to color your hair. Right. Go on. And so, so, my, so I get this email, you know, I get, uh, and, and I look at it, I'm like, okay, well, clearly I'm not coloring my hair. Um, yeah, like, I guess I, I, I'm fortunate to still have some of it, but I just not, I guess it's not, it's You're not my style. You're very fortunate, yeah. Yeah, it's not nice to, to, to color my hair at all. And so anyway, so I write her back a very polite email saying, Dear Susan, thank you for writing. You yeah. know, I can assure you I am not coloring my hair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so then... Um, you know, fast forward six months later, I'm working on the next newsletter, and I've got the graphic designer there, and we're talking about what the articles are going to be and uh, all that kind of stuff. And and I start telling the story. I'm like, uh, talking to the graphic designer, I say, oh, you know, I after my that last newsletter, I had. Can you believe this? I had a constituent write me, mm-hmm. and they said uh, that I should stop coloring my hair. Isn't that so? Like, Obviously, I don't color my hair, right? Mm-hmm. And so she says to me, she says, well, Jeff. We photoshopped you. <laughs> you didn't color your hair. Somebody else did yeah, it for you after so, the fact. So the, 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 what that always reminds me is that the customer's always right. You know, yeah. like like I here I am thinking, oh no, of course not. Like uh, right. Like I know that I know whether I've colored my hair or not, right? Yeah. And um, it turned out no, she was right. <laughs> that's actually that's I think actually a very interesting and illustrative story about politics that I think is really uncomfortable for some people who run for office, particularly when you get to like the state rep, state senate level and higher, is that there's an element of you that you don't own anymore, right? Yeah, um, like you, you built this newsletter, you told the folks what you wanted in it, right? And you told the graphic designers how you wanted it laid out, and they just assumed quite naturally from their perspective, yeah, you know, we'll touch Jer- Jeff's hair up a little bit, get some of the gray out of it or whatever. Yeah. Like there's an aspect of yourself that you don't own anymore. True. Now, granted, I I know I signed off on that final proof. I'm sure you so did. So I'm sure. I mean, if I'd have been more attentive to what my hair looked like ever right. or then, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd have been further ahead. Right. Uh, so um, you know, but yeah, it was a it, it was it was a good lesson for me to to realize a what you're talking about, and also like I said, you know, she was right, I was wrong, and I, that happens so often. So did you tell her? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh, turns I'm sure out you guys right. had a good laugh about that. Turns out you were right, Susan. I, Excellent. Well, um, once again, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast. I've really enjoyed doing this. And uh, once again, State Senator Jeff Irwin, um, thanks again for being on the uh, Ticket Splitters podcast, and we'll see you all again soon. Thanks for having me.